0: The scripture for this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret.
1: thought about posting
2: a picture of my notes somewhere. Uh, if you ever want to know what my notes look like before I preach. I think they're weird, but they're probably not. Um, if you ever wonder what's in this notebook, it's handwritten notes. Don't say much. Anyway, And I was, as I was working on this sermon, this was by far the most challenging one for me in this series, I was struck again and again at Jesus' interactions and his teaching here the full expectation that... The, the love of God, especially as people encountered it with Jesus in conversation through his teaching and miracles, immediately had ramifications to their past, to their present, and to their future. And my hope is in offering up to Jesus our past, our daily lives, and our future, we experience the healing, interpretation, and the integration. We experience the peace and joy of the kingdom in a daily way. And we know, and therefore hope, in the security of our future. And in that, we're less stuck. Do you feel stuck? The question that Jesus asked the man in John 5, do you want to be well? I think that you do, and yet most people want to feel better more so than they want to get better, kind of as an instinct. And yet, there's an opportunity for us to heal. I have
1: used this language before of um, collision. My clicker is not working. There it goes.
2: Um, because both how Jesus describes the coming kingdom, and how um, this prayer expects that we. Look to Jesus with full expectation that in the future our lives will look more and more like kingdom lives. Jesus taught holistically. You're familiar with Matthew 22, verse 34 through 37, when Jesus talks about loving the Lord. This is not the only time in the scripture that uh, Jesus says or does this, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. Both a description of a full human being, not the silly one that we often default to in the West, thinking that we have a mind and a body. And those things are separate, but they're both kind of part of us. Jesus taught much more holistically about that. And that's a guidance for us too, right? Love as an activity, as a move of emotion and of choice of our mind and our heart, and our soul, and our strength. And the reason I'm bringing that up, and the reason I'm inserting that scripture into the way I think about Matthew 6, and the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, uh, specifically teaches us to pray there, is because we're being grown right now into more whole lovers of God and therefore of neighbor. And that's an encouragement. If you've read the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, one of the beautiful things about that text is, that text is, it teaches indirectly as Jesus does here. Did you notice that, that, well, stick with Galatians 5. Stay focused, Matt. Galatians 5 fully assumes, anticipates, even promises that the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is currently growing them up right then. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Similarly, Matthew 5, just before this text, the Beatitudes, there's a full expectation that the Holy Spirit is growing us in this beautiful way of doing life right now. Psalm 1 describes a follower of God as like a tree, being grown into something that offers shade to others, something strong and stable. The alternative is fine, fine dust called chaff. Jesus unpacks this very complexly uh, in John chapters 14 through 17, talks about the, the past of the disciples, the present with him in that very moment, and all that he was teaching them, and the future that was coming very soon. And so, sermon series like these kind of stress me out, very frankly. I'm, I'm much more comfortable preaching through books of the Bible. But, when we approach books of the Bible indirectly, through an opportunity for us to notice that inviting Jesus into our past, our present, and even our future, we can become
1: unstuck in him. So, go through an exercise with me, if you don't mind. Maybe you
2: mind, I don't know, maybe you're talking back to the TV. Um, You have half a day, non-COVID time, and you can tell that you need uh, a little more engagement with Jesus than you were going to plan that day. So circumstances line up. You have a few days to
1: plan. What do you want to do? Do you want to serve in a soup kitchen? As an example. S- Steve, go ahead. Or, and this is, I realize I didn't give you very long to think about it, or would you just stop and read your Bible? Or
2: perhaps a book on the grace and mercy of Jesus? Or would you go on a walk? What would be the thing that you would do with two to four hours? Perhaps you get together with some friends and talk about Jesus. Perhaps you want to sing. And here's the encouragement. All of these things are part of the with God life. And all of these things are ways that we worship him. And all of these things are ways that we are being grown to worship him. You probably resonate with, maybe with all of them, but most specifically with one or two of them. And yet, what you're being grown into is a more holistic lover of God. I like to say uh, in relationships that we never get to, Christians never get to say, well, that's just how I am. And I think as a lover of God, we also don't want to say, that's just how I am, and limit ourselves. Well, I just don't like singing. Well, Jesus did, and the people of God have done it for thousands of years, so we could grow. I don't like serving the least of these. Well, that gets real scary if you read Matthew chapter 25. And, my, and, and the reason I say this is we not only limit ourselves in thinking maybe one or two of those resonate with me and those are just going to be my way, we end up judging others when they don't match up with us. And all of these ways of loving God are good. So Jesus taught holistically about loving God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love that not only because it's guiding to us, I love it not only because of the way he's defining a human in that description, it also reminds us of all the parts of us. This is love commanded in a way that is emotional, but not limited to emotions. It's, it's active, though it's not limited to activity, it's visceral, it's intellectual.
1: And we see Jesus throughout the Bible, the way he interacted with... Your, Your screen didn't freeze. I'm just trying to follow my notes correctly. I mean, maybe it did, but
2: probably not. Jesus not only taught us, commanded us to love God, we also, in in watching him, and by that I mean reading the Gospels, we note through how he loved others, how he loved God. John chapter 2, he loves his friends and begins his mission at a big party, at a wedding. In John chapter 3, I think it's pretty obvious that he enjoyed this discussion with a learned follower of God who had some earnest questions. And it's, a, it's an eerie conversation with Nicodemus because we don't know how, what happened with Nicodemus over the next year or two or three, depending on when this happened in Jesus' life, but we do know he's there at the end. In John chapter four, Jesus stops at a well and speaks with a woman who is a follower of God, but of a different race, and most of Jesus' people and her people would not have spoken with one another and the way that he asked questions, and specific to this sermon series, the way that he expected her past and present and future to be part of the interaction with him. And when she wasn't willing to go there, he pushed. And so I'm pushing that we present to Jesus our past and our present and our future and ask him to tend
1: to them. When I talked uh, two weeks ago,
2: uh, the first sermon on the past, I received a number of encouraging um, texts and emails, especially from older folks. And a couple of people mentioned that it was overwhelming to think through it. So I want to back up for just a little bit before we, before we press into the kingdom promises about our future. Because I believe it's worth re saying some of these things. So we ask Jesus to interpret and to integrate what's happened to us in the past. And if you've never done that, do not start with the big things. Do not start with the sudden deaths that you're grieving, even if it was years ago. Do not start with the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you. Start with a short list of things that are, uh, you've wondered if there's more meaning there than you have. And make, make the list keep it short, and then begin to invite him into the interpretation and then the integration of that. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you something that happened to me after preaching that sermon. One of the wonderful things, sometimes challenging and, and <laughs> annoying things about being a pastor, is working through the text and learning how to talk to you about it often convicts me. Something really lovely happened, though. Um, I have been telling myself a narrative since growing up, about myself and music. Both of my parents are incredibly, incredibly gifted musicians. And I was pretty good in elementary school. And then I stopped practicing and became not as good at the piano. That was the story I'd been telling myself. And part of the reason this story was on my mind is because I was talking about our past. And another reason is my younger daughter is taking piano lessons and I've been practicing with her both because she wants me to and because it's fun. But that narrative was in my head. And I realized that I was very good one year at piano. And then I started telling myself a different narrative the next year. And when I remembered which years those were, it was the year that I had an accident and actually lost part of my finger. Um, And do you see how inviting Jesus in to interpret and then integrate that information kind of released me in a small way that's it. That was a, a tragic story, but one that I understand. In a small way, though, it released me to enjoy more practicing piano with my 11-year-old. As a metaphor, some of you noticed last week I was wearing a splint. That splint needs to be cleaned and dried sometimes because it's made out of cloth. And this week, I just have some tape on my fingers. Well, what happened was three months ago, I was playing basketball and, and tipped the ball kind of the wrong way with my finger, and it didn't move very much. felt like I jammed it. But over two months it didn't stop hurting. When I put the splint on, it hurt like fire for two or three days. And I think because it wasn't healing correctly. And I could have kept using my finger my whole life. I assumed the pain would have eventually gone away, but it wouldn't have healed right. And so I'm wearing the splint or taping it when the splint's drying. And the reason is I want it to heal the right way. I don't want to be in pain anymore. I want my hand to have full function. Your life is a metaphor given up to Jesus. It can be interpreted and integrated. Then we receive the kingdom promises of healing and joy. Jesus taught holistically about loving God and about a kingdom. Now I get to apologize to the tech team again because they did some really hard work putting some slides in that I'm not going to use. Sorry. (laughs) I'll use them later, but not today. Jesus taught holistically about loving God and about a kingdom. In Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, Jesus' first words are about a kingdom that is right then. When people hear his words, there's a kingdom available to them. Paul's definition of that kingdom, Romans 14, 17, is the kingdom is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace. And the reason I talk about the kingdom a lot is it's hard to overstate something. It's hard to overstate the importance of Jesus' first words in his earthly ministry. Then I run to Paul for a definition because we're like, what does that mean? And I love when people say, like, the kingdom exists everywhere that Jesus is king. I think that's true, but I don't think it's as true or helpful in a day-to-day moment as Romans 14 and 17. And how that applies to your future is, if you don't believe there's joy and peace available to you right now, then you're not going to believe that your, key, your future is secure in Christ. And do you see how these things match up? And those of you that are, that are thoughtful psychologically, Understand, like your past has so much to do with how you act right now, which has so much to do with your future self. Jesus described his work and message as a kingdom. Paul describes that as joy. And I want you to believe and then lean into the healing power of the existence of the kingdom. And one of the reasons that's challenging is it's invisible. The righteousness, joy, and peace of Jesus Christ in you now because of the Holy Spirit is invisible. And yet I want you to know that that kingdom cannot be taken away from you. Do you know that? And do you know why it can't be taken away from you? Because of who bought it, who purchased it for you. It was Jesus. Now, you can resist enjoying the kingdom through diversion, worse, through sin, and yet that kingdom exists, and one of the things for the future we must do as followers of Jesus is we must ask the Lord where our idols are and i don 't know if you're familiar with that word idols So <laughs> like if you have, you're like i haven 't put any statues up in my yard or in my house like i 'm good, and those act that, that's part of it, but as a metaphor in the New Testament. An idol, and this is my definition, is a mundane gift we ask to speak to our soul. And mundane might be a word that doesn't um, resonate a ton with you, but I really like it because the double loss of an idol is we don't enjoy the, the gift because we're asking it to speak to our soul. And I love that when Paul describes the kingdom in Romans, he says it's not a matter of food and drink what happens when we go to food and drink to speak to our soul either because of their function as a stimulant or a depressant or through gluttony is
1: we don't actually enjoy the thing i don't know what it is with you it's probably multiple things
2: i watch parents and this and listen this is so important most of the things that are idolatrous in our lives are good things, but we're not appropriating them as good things. Parents, your children are not to be worshipped, and that's challenging because you love them so much, and they bring so much joy into your life. And the interesting, one of the interesting things about learning not to worship them is then you are free to enjoy them, and the relationship's going to be healthier also.
1: In Matthew chapter twenty two verse thirty four through thirty seven Jesus says this.
2: But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. that idea. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, "You shall love the Lord your
1: God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." Jesus described the king or Paul describes the kingdom as righteousness, joy,
2: and peace. And he corrects us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so if you're following me, and I'm barely following me, so if you're not, it's okay. If you're following me, we're asking Jesus to tend to our past, to interpret and then to integrate what has happened to us and to give us meaning and peace about those things. We're asking for Jesus' daily guidance for our daily life, that we might actually experience what he has said we receive. Right? Living joy and peace. And then, into the future, we are asking that we sense the security of the kingdom that he's purchased for us which is a really roundabout way of encouraging you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must be asking with some kind of regularity, Lord, where are my idols? Probably are going to need to talk with some other people about your idols.
1: It's probably going to take some time. There are so many examples
2: And one encouragement, if you realize through prayer or through conversation where an idol is, you can't just remove it. That's not how humans work. That's not how people work. And then what you have to do is going to sound overly metaphorical, and yet it's the best answer I know of to this question. When you realize where there is an idol in your life, whether it's uh, gluttony or an idol of intimacy, and intimacy is a good thing, but we know that sometimes when we pursue it, we're asking it to speak to our soul instead of enjoy the other human. Perhaps it's one of security. How much is in our 401k or was in January? Perhaps it's our children. When we understand, we can't, well, can't remove the people or the thing, right? We have to remove the idol and then immediately add gospel activity to that, which probably means conversation which probably means prayer. And it's going to be a process of removing our idols. If you think, if it, depending on how your brain works, you've probably been wondering why I chose the scripture that I did. Why choose the Lord's Prayer? Why include the two directives about how not to pray? Why include the part with the full expectation that we've already forgiven our enemies and therefore can rest? Did you catch that passive language Jesus uses in the prayer? and then the directive afterwards, he expects that those that have received the with God life and the kingdom forgive. A lot to say about that. It's because in the middle of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is as beautiful and profound of an already not yet command and description of the with God life as we have in the Bible. The whole Bible speaks to the Holy Spirit tending to our past, guiding us in the present and securing our future in him. And here's Jesus telling us not only that we have the kingdom, but that it's coming and that we're to command it to come. What this means is we ask, Lord, would you make my house like your kingdom? If you live alone, if you live with other humans, make our house like your kingdom. That's what we're praying when we say, it's not all that we're praying, but it's a large part of what we pray when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We're not only asking him to come back and make all things right, because that would be the far, far best, that would be the best, by far, Sunday afternoon we could all have. But in the meantime, your kingdom come. Make our house like your kingdom. Already we receive joy security peace the not yet is when we're separated from all of the curse and so I, in the third point of the sermon tending to asking the lord to tend to our future i gave the negative side of that which is lord help us to see our idols the positive side utilizing the lord's prayer is make my life my house like your kingdom. We pray that with the full expectation that the Holy Spirit is in us and growing us up as a lover of him
1: and of the neighbors that he's put into our lives. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we trust you and ask that you help us to trust you more deeply. Jesus, we understand your words in part and we ask that we would understand them more fully.
2: Holy Spirit, we are assured because of your existence and love, yet comfort and assure us in ways that we can sense and understand.
1: Holy Spirit, thank you for drawing us together in the kingdom while we are not able
2: yet to gather Thank you for drawing us together in that realm. Bless us as we move back into our lives.
1: Teach us to love you and the neighbors you've put into our lives well. Amen.